Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And my name is Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are the Minimalists. We're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. Of course, TK Coleman. It's the most wonderful time of the year. We've got the rest of the team here. (laughs) We've got the rest of the team here as well. Jordan No More, a.k.a. Jordan... No more stuff. Oh, we got Professor Sean here, the talented novelist, the talented audio engineer, the talented personality. Of course, we got Danny Unknown, aka Unleashed. Oh, Danny Unavailable, Uncontested, <laughs> Undefeated, <laughs> Unflagellated. <laughs> Just on the, the calendar, it always says Danny Unavailable. I thought maybe he changed his name. <laughs> Danny Undaunted by jokes and criticism. Oh, he's Danny right. unamused right now. Danny Unfazed. Unamused. <laughs> we got so much to talk about today. We're going to talk about some upsetting things. Maybe things, things, or maybe it's things that go beyond the things. We're going to talk about wanting what you want and why you can't want what you want. We're going to start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. And big shout out, big thanks to our Patreon supporters. You keep this podcast and our YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because advertisements suck. Our first question today is from Jenny. Hi, this is Ginny from Kentucky. I'm a minimalist simpleton. When I was growing up, I was surrounded by animals, dogs, cats, rabbits, chickens. At 12 years old, I got my first horse and have had one ever since for over 40 years. I do love animals and consider becoming a veterinarian. I had a head start on minimalism when my husband died three years ago and I moved twice since then. Each time I threw away or gave away things left by my husband or two grown children, sporting goods, office accessories, clothes, books, vacation souvenirs. I had to deal with almost 40 years of accumulation. But now I continue to shed things that somehow got missed before. Overall, I am doing quite well getting down to what I need rather than what I want. It is slow but sure and Goodwill and I have become good friends. One problem all the paraphernalia that belongs to pets and horses. For my dog and cat, there are feeding bowls, grooming tools, shampoos and sprays, leashes and collars, medicines, winter coats, litter boxes, treats and food, on and on. And horses are worse when you've owned them for so long. I sold my horse last year, but the barn is full of buckets, blankets, grooming tools, feed bins, fly sheets, temporary electric fence, bridles, saddles, halters, ropes, and all kinds of specialty accessories. If I give away or sell these items, it means I have made the decision not to have a horse anymore. This decision weighs on my mind since horses have been a part of my life and identity for so many years. So I keep all this stuff around thinking maybe someday I'll need it again. I'm not sure I can give up at least the possibility that I will ride again. As a new minimalist, the clutter that these pet accessories create are getting in the way of me breaking free of possessions. 
What does an animal lover do? Jenny, I totally identify with you. I, too, have been surrounded by these animals my entire life. <laughs> Jenny, you can send all your treats to the minimalists at uh, 8322 <laughs> Beverly <laughs> Boulevard. It looked like he was looking at you like, like kind of like Home Alone. You <clears throat> filled the animal. He's like, I've been surrounded by these animals all my life. <laughs> so there's an interesting story that I hear behind this, because when I first heard this, I thought it was a question about letting go of pet accessories. But it's not that at all. Mm. It's the the pet accessories are a stand in for the story we tell ourselves. I'm letting go of this piece of my identity. Yeah. Mm. And there's a good reason to do that, right? Because wherever you want to go, meaning what you actually want is being impeded by what you think you might want, right? Because people often give up what they want to get what they think they want. Yeah. Because I'll get what I want right now. And what I want right now is the story that I'm clinging to that maybe someday in some non-existent hypothetical future, I will once again be a horse person. And if I let go of these things, what happens? I'm no longer that person. Well, of course, that's not true because let's say today you let go of all of them and you felt the amazing relief there's spontaneous combustion. You've, you've, they've gone up in smoke and now they're gone and now you feel the relief of letting go of those things. But five years from now, you want to get a horse? Guess what? You still have access to getting those things again via the same means that you sold them, by the way. Let's say you sell them on eBay or Craigslist or maybe you just give them away somewhere. You can pick those things back up again if they serve you in the future but you don't have to carry them into that future and let them weigh you down in the meantime. Yeah, nothing robs us of our ability to be playful. Uh, how do I say that? Nothing robs us of our ability to be playful quite like the commitment to making everything permanent, right? Like if I let this go, I have to let it go mm. forever. If I get rid of this book, that means I'm deciding forever to never read the book, no matter how I feel in the future, no matter what inspires me, no matter what I want to do at some later date, I am permanently committing to do this. We even do this when we pick majors in college. If I pick to major in this now, I am choosing forever mm. to love this and do this. And the most liberating thing we can remember is we have the permission to change our minds. The you that puts it down is the same you that can pick it back up. And so you can let things go without subscribing to a story of permanence. Giving away your possessions now is a reality. Giving away your possessions forever is a story that binds you to some, it, 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 it separates you from your possibilities. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Ryan, I, I'm thinking about what she said with respect to goodwill has become her good friend. Mm -hmm. But then mm. she's identified this other clutter that she's not willing to give up to goodwill or the pet equivalent uh, of goodwill. Yeah. Right. And so, as TK just said, she's bound herself to these things, which removes you from the possibility. You mentioned the book, because I think that's an easy one. I've actually gotten rid of books before and then not regretted it, but then realized like, oh, I yeah. want to read that book again. And guess mm. what I did? I went to the library and I got a copy of it or I went to my local independent bookshop and bought a copy of it again. Mm. And I had the ability to read it again. The last thing I'll say here is, you know what? A lot of things she let go of were probably sentimental, but I don't hear any sentimental attachment to mm. these things. Yeah, And so 
you don't even have to deal with the fact that you might be sentimentally tied to this. In fact, you are tied to them even though you don't want to be. You're holding on to something that you really wish you could put down. Well, how do you put it down? You just, you stop clinging. Mm. Let me tell you about a Ryan Nicodemus who (laughs) embraced Frisbee golf. (laughs) So let me tell you, I used to love regular golf, okay? Like I had some sweet clubs, sweet bag, um, took some lessons, was never amazing at it, but uh, really enjoyed it. And then I heard about Frisbee golf. And I'm like, oh, that must be for the losers who can't play regular golf. Mm. So I uh, uh, never touched it. I, I looked at Frisbee golf like it was lesser than and eventually got to a point in my uh, my golf hobby life where I just I, I could not hang on to these clubs anymore. So um, I, I let those go. And my wife, we were in Montana last summer and she was, uh, you know, trying to talk me into playing Frisbee golf. And I'm like, no, because my identity is as a golfer and I'm not going to give it up. And a long story short, well, wow. I, uh, I went with her to play um, just one round of Frisbee golf and absolutely loved it. Yes. And I was like, oh, wow, I've really been depriving myself <laughs> of like playing this sport because of this identity that I had wrapped up as a golfer. Again, horrible golfer, much better Frisbee golfer. But my point is, is that once you um, once you start clinging to an identity, A, like you're holding yourself from moving forward in, in other areas of life. And sometimes that identity that you're so wrapped up with, if you let it go, actually might might be okay. And you might actually uh, enjoy life a little bit better when you do let go of that identity. So I guess that's my way of saying, Jenny, give Frisbee golf a chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about that. Let's, let's, let's carry that forward a little bit more. Imagine if every time you went to go play Frisbee golf now, you had to bring those golf clubs with you and carry oh, them on yeah. your back. Right. That's where Jenny is right now. She's carrying her golf clubs into Frisbee golf and wondering why it's not as enjoyable. Mm, yeah. yeah, It's not as enjoyable because you're carrying forward the things from the past that no longer serve you. Mm. And it's okay to let go. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, it, it's interesting when, when you think about this, this dilemma here because she, you know, sometimes you need to give yourself the chance to see what happens to an interest when it's not staring you in the face. Mm. If if the only time you like want to do something is when you're looking at possessions related to it, then that might be valuable information about what your real relationship to that thing is. So with the books, for example, I had books that I kept around for a long time because they're part of that fantasy reading list. But one day I'm going to want to read that right one day. And then when I got rid of them, the desire to read them left. It's like, oh, okay. The desire to read it actually came from having the possession staring me in the face every day. But once it's gone, the passion to read it is no longer there. Now, there are some other books where that passion still remained after some time, but you better believe it. When I got the book back, I actually read it because I appreciated it. So sometimes you have to let things go Mm. in order to see where you really stand uh, in relation to them. Yeah, and that willingness to let go, Jenny, that is a superpower. And it's almost like when I have an opportunity to um, let go of different things, whether it's a physical possession or whether it's an identity or a physical possession that is wrapped up in an identity that I associate with, uh, I, I take like a, not pride, but, I take it as a challenge to like just loosen my grip on these things. And I'll tell you, um, 
Jenny, like that is the most freeing thing in the world when you can loosen your grip, when you can let go. And as you said, TK, it's like, if it's really, really meant to be, it'll come back around to you, Jenny. And you will, you will go back out and, and get whatever you need to go ride horses. But, uh, yeah, clinging certainly is not the way to, um, motivate yourself to, to take on this, this identity of riding a horse that clinging is just going to, if anything, it's going to stilt you, I feel like. And it's yeah. freeing in one sense, but at the same time, it's also terrifying. And I think that's where she is right now. Letting mm. go of something can be terrifying. It's kind of like a newborn baby. Mm. They're naked and free and absolutely terrified. They're brand new to this world. It's a mm. rebirth for Ginny letting go of these things. And so, yes, there will be some fear in that. And next week, we're actually be talking to Julian Smith about fear and and how we flinch at all of these things mm. that we don't necessarily need to flinch at. And when I'm thinking about Ginny and her clinging here, quite often, it's easy for us to let go of something that has never served us, that we never give any really meaning, meaning to. If you have a yeah. drawer full of pens and there's one that's all dried up and there's no more ink in yeah. it, mm-hmm. no one's like... Well, most people aren't like, oh, I could never let go of this old blue Bic pen. Mm-hmm. You just chuck it in the trash. Yeah. I can't let go of it. Otherwise, I'll never be a writer. Right. Oh, <laughs> I mean, wow, even, yeah. yeah. And, and and the same thing is true here, where it's like, if I let go of this, it functionally has the same thing, it does the same thing as letting go of that cheap Bic blue pen. Mm. You're just getting something out of the way that no longer serves you. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's getting something out of the way. and. So many times we hold on to things with a narrative of just in case because we're afraid to pay some hypothetical price in the future should we need it back. Mm -hmm. But in exchange for uh, doing that, we pay a health price in the present. We say, because uh, I might have to pay some hypothetical price in the future, I'm just going to be unhealthy and unhappy now by keeping a bunch of things around that are making me feel heavy. Bama, you got something you want to say? Yeah, I I grew up around horses. I'm not someone who handled them myself, but I wanted to offer up another suggestion because what I hear Jenny talking about uh, as goodwill not really being a practical option, you don't really donate horse equipment there because it is such a specialty kind of thing. One thing she could do is reach out to people in her local um, equine community, people that have ranches in her area. And if she's not ready to donate those, start a conversation with some of those folks. Say, hey, I have some stuff I'm not using right now, but I might want it later. Is this something that you could use and see if it's something that would benefit them to give it on loan? That way you you have that option to bring it back in should you decide you want to go riding again. But worst case scenario, you give it to someone who can use it right now and who can really benefit from that. Horses are used in a lot of um, therapy practices nowadays, and there's a lot of rehabilitation um, areas to kind of help um, mm. some horses that, that had been abused and neglected, get back on their feet by mm. really good people. And I think that'd be a great way to connect, connect with your community. Just mm. a, a thought. Yeah, that's good. Where I live up in Ojai, the local humane society where you usually go, go ad- adopt cats and dogs also has horses that you can adopt. Really? And that's so, so cool. That's another option. If you live somewhere that has a humane society or humane society equivalent, they could certainly use the equipment that, by the way, is just collecting dust and it's not giving you any value at all, but someone else could get real value from it if you're willing 
to let go. Jenny, I want to give you two things. I'm going to put links to both of these in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. The first is the minimalist rule book. It's 16 rules for living with less because what's happening right now is you're setting up some boundaries in your life. And one of those boundaries is I'm not holding on to things that are no longer adding value. They're not enhancing my life. And so there's some rules in there. I think you can apply to not just this horse equipment and these accessories, but throughout the rest of your life as well. Things like the spontaneous combustion rule or the seasonality rule or the 30-day minimalism game. And second, we did a whole episode on pets. It's called Simple Pets. It was episode 329. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Our next question is from Joy. Hey guys, it's Joy from Houston. You recently did an episode on anger and I really enjoyed the part where you talked about how Bex may sometimes leave the pain out. And you can either choose to get angry and go to her and say, well, why did you leave this pain out? Or you could just put the pain away yourself, which is a really good thought. I love that. But how does this work with children when we're supposed to be guiding them and teaching them Put your shoes away, put your backpack up, clean up after yourself, throw your trash away when you're done eating. All the little constant messes I see around my house, I do find myself sometimes picking it up, but then I also find myself constantly nagging. You know you should put this up. You know you should be putting your shoes where they go every day in the closet, but I find them all over the house. So... What's a loving way how we can talk to our children and teach them how to take care of their things? Now, Joy, I think there's a truth here that a thing can neither fulfill nor upset you, right? We often buy things because we think they're going to make us happy. Mm. But also, we try to get rid of things, in particular, other people's things or other people's tasks or the things that are getting in our way because we think that thing is upsetting me. No, only you upset you, right? The story you tell yourself about your things can fulfill you or upset you, but not the thing itself. There's, I wanna make one big distinction here. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts as well. When I was talking on a previous episode about that with Bex, if she leaves the can of paint out, right? It's not up to her to unupset me, to Mm. unfrustrate me. Now, I know she's loving and caring. She doesn't want me to be upset, but she can't predict every microaggression that I perceive because she's not being aggressive toward me at all. Now, I think there's a similarity here. Your kids aren't trying to upset you, most likely. Now, if they're teenagers, they might be trying to thumb their nose at you to get a rise out of you. But generally, your kids aren't trying to upset you. Even when they're curious about your emotions, they don't want you to be upset. It's just they're not thinking about the things the same way you are. Just as my wife isn't thinking about her things the same way I think about the things. The things that get in the way may not, for me, may not get in the way for her. And I think it's important to make that distinction. However, I think that also with kids, they don't understand their own boundaries yet. Mm -hmm. And so really what you're doing is By nagging them, you're giving them a prescription. You should do this. And you're either being aggressive, you're upset, and then that bleeds over into them. 
Mm-hmm. Our friend Rob Bell says your number one job is to enjoy your kids, and it's probably my most difficult job in my life when it comes to quote unquote parenting is being able to enjoy my kids. Now, why is that? It has nothing to do with with Ella, my daughter. It has to do with the expectations that I heap onto her, just mm-hmm. like Joy has heaped these expectations onto her kids. Now, it's okay to expect them to put their toys away, to put their clothes away, to not leave things strewn throughout the living room. There's no problem with that. The problem you're having here is if they don't meet your expectation, you're now giving yourself permission to be upset. Here's what you're doing, Joy. You're handing your joy to your children Mm. and you're begging them to give it back to you Mm. through their actions. Mm. That's right. And there's a huge difference between nagging and boundary setting. Nagging is when you make it about you and the judgment, the judgments you have about them. You know you ought to be doing better. How many times have I told you this? I tell you this every day. And that just complicates things and distracts from the real goal. The real goal is to help them cultivate the mindfulness necessary to do the things that they need to do. And anytime it's all about how you feel, how angry you are, how many times you told them, um, you know, or even asking them, well, why did you do that? Why did you leave that on the middle of the floor? I mean, what are they going to say? Because I'm stupid, because I'm irresponsible, because I really want it to ruin your day. They probably don't know. Most of the times when we do things like, why do we do things? that are unhealthy. Most of the times we don't know. We just Mm. kind of live by impulse. We're creatures of habit. We don't have any accountability. We weren't thinking. We do that every single day. And it's far more effective to just consistently nudge people in the direction they need to go in until they get it. So someone spills the juice. Hey, need you to clean it up right now. Need Mm. you to clean it up. Not Hey, I told you last time. Hey, how many times I got to tell you? Nope, because that's just going to be a distraction. Well, you got to talk to me like this or not. Need you to clean that up. Stop what you're doing and clean that up. And they eventually get it. And if you find yourself communicating something five or six times and they don't get it, then it probably needs a context for communication that's a little bit different. Like you take a moment outside of the moment and you sit down and you say, hey, we're having a problem with this. I've told you this several times and you're not doing it. So I'm going to let down, I'm going to lay down this new boundary here. Mm -hmm. If you don't do this, then this will be the consequence because people, even children, they're not going to respond to the bitterness you feel towards them. They're going to respond to the boundaries you set. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Becker, uh, Joshua Becker, who says, you know, kids don't do what you tell them to. They do what you do. Mm -hmm. And to me, what that means, and, you know, it's so easy for me to make any observations on children when I have none. uh, But to me, it's almost like uh, with a child, you have to be with them and uh, really help them see a, like what those boundaries are, but then also like what the benefits of those boundaries are. It makes me think about, I don't know, when I was managing retail stores and you get a salesperson uh, and they're brand new and they have no idea what they're doing. So, you know, I wouldn't just give them a long list of things here, do these things. It was being with them on the sales floor and walking them through every step of the way to really show them Um, Hey, here's an example of how it's done. You try it by yourself. If you need any more help, I will, you know, come back and be with you during this process. Um, But yeah, it's interesting with kids because there is a, um, there's a, I want to say an ownership thing that I, I feel like a lot of parents take on. I know with my dad, it was an ownership thing. 
I am his son. Therefore, I am to respect him and do everything that he says. Hmm. And um, he earned very little of my respect taking, taking that approach. Yeah, and, and that is important. To earn respect, it's not just about the how. Kids mm. don't understand the how. Adults don't understand the how. It's why the three of us don't talk about, here are the 67 ways to declutter your closet. That's a how, and the how can be important, but you yeah. never really get it until you understand the why. And especially with a kid, if it's constantly, pick up your Legos. Here's how you pick up your Legos. Yeah. Let me show you how to pick up your Legos. They don't know why it's important. Mm -hmm. But if you show them that every time you leave them out, I step on it and it hurts me. Do you want to hurt me as your parent? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. Now they understand the why. And then you can show them the how, but it is that why that will propel them forward. Because yeah. you won't keep doing something, especially if it gets hard or it's uncompelling to you, unless you understand the why. We got another question here. This one is from Renee. And this is Renee from Ocala, Florida. I have always wanted to keep a journal. I don't have the greatest memory, but I love to look back on moments. Um, how do you feel about journaling, digital versus physical, especially in this day and age with everything being digital? Like I work an eight to five job where I sit at a computer all day and know if this is harming my eyes or um, if a physical approach would be more of a better suit. Well, during our More About Less segment today, I've got this essay from Kapil Gupta, and it totally changed my mind about how we think about memories. Now, for the longest time, of course, I thought the same way everyone thought about memories. I wouldn't let go of my things because, oh, I don't want to let go of my memories, right? And so I would hold on to those things, not realizing that the memories aren't in the things, the memories are in me. In fact, you saw that in our last Netflix film, Less Is Now, when I talk about our memories not being in the things, the memories being inside us. And it is possible to let go of a thing and still retain the memory. Kapil takes it even a step further, which we'll see later today on the private podcast here. What Kapil shows you is that, well, you don't really need those memories necessarily. A person who enjoys the now needn't cling to memories for happiness. Now, as soon as I say that, someone's gonna say, oh, but my memories, I love my memories. Okay, I'm not telling you to get rid of memories. I'm simply saying that memories are often a way for us to cling to mm. the way things were. It's the disease of nostalgia. And that is often when we cling to those memories, we cling to the things. So journaling for me, if it's just a way to cling to memories, I don't find it to be particularly useful for me. However, where I do find journaling to be interesting and useful is if it helps me discover how I think about something, if it helps me better understand a situation about my life or a greater truth about the world or a situational truth, then I don't call it journaling. I just write. I write every morning. And I don't care about the vehicle. Often, I teach a writing class at howtowritebetter.org, and often students will ask something, and Professor Sean can attest to this, like, what pen do you use? Yeah. What journal do you use? As though if I, you handed me Stephen King's pencil, I'm going to write the book Carrie. No, of course I'm not. It is just a tool, and he didn't need that particular pencil, 
I saw an ad the other day in the Paris Review, which is my favorite quarterly publication. And it was an ad for a really expensive pen, a Mont Blanc pen, right? <laughs> and I'm sure they're really nice. I bet you they write really oh, wow. well. But yeah. the ad was pretending that if I have the Mont Blanc pen, then I am the type of person who can pin something that is mm. everlasting, that is true, that is mm. profound. And thus, without it, yeah. then I cannot be the writer that I want to be. I can't be the best version of myself. So yes, I write every day. I was writing early this morning and it helps me figure out what I think about the world. It helps me better understand the world, but I don't do it to cling to my memories. Yeah. I bought a uh, pair of Montblanc sunglasses like a decade ago. You remember that? Yes. When we were in Chicago. They fell apart like a year and a half later. Anyway. They look nice. <laughs> they did look really nice. Yeah. Just like a pin though, right? Right. And now, it, now what if you said, <clears throat> without those sunglasses, I can no longer go out into the sun. Right. I can't see the world as good <laughs> as well as if I didn't have the Montblanc sunglasses. No, it is, it is crazy how specifically with something like Montblanc, like it really is just built on a name, which is built from marketing and advertising and there are there are some good pens i mean i'm not a pen enthusiast but mm -hmm. i hear that they do a good job but it really comes down to that perceived value that they're making you think it's worth um but to your point it's like you could write as good of a paragraph with this pen i have in my hand here or a montblanc pen yes and i would argue that the montblanc while it may be a technically a better writing utensil better. Yeah. If you become dependent on it, mm. now all of a sudden it's Ooh, clutter. Not, yeah. Because uh, this pen that I have right here, this is a Pilot G2. Mm -hmm. uh, the It's a size 10. That's the, the, the thickness of the ink. These are the kind we use here in the studio. This is the kind I typically use. It's a great pen. Yeah. It serves me better than the Mont Blanc. Why? Yeah. Not because of the pen, because I never worry about it. If this thing gets lost today, mm -hmm. I just pick up another Pilot G2 and it's not yeah. a problem. And if you have to have a Mont Blanc pen to write a good paragraph, like how limiting is that? So Ooh. limiting. Yeah. Professor Sean. Um, I, I will see that Mont Blanc fountain pens are beautiful fountain pens, but it's funny because yes. you just held up a Pilot G2 and Pilot makes a beautiful fountain pen that mm. is, I don't know, one fifth, one sixth, one tenth the price of a Mont Blanc fountain pen. Yeah. I've owned one for like a decade and it's, it's my journaling pen when I rarely journal mm. and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What's your writing utensil, TK? I don't even pay attention to those details. <laughs> he just but, pricks his finger and writes in blood. But, but that, that doesn't mean I'm so sophisticated that I don't pay attention. It means I'm so unsophisticated yeah. that I don't really know the difference uh, well, when yeah. it comes to stuff like that. It means that. that you don't put up barriers in front of yourself to write. Like, could you imagine getting up and being like, oh, it's time to write. Oh, no, where's my Mont Blanc pen? I don't have it. Yes. And now, like, I can't write because I don't have a, a specific pen. I'm like Eminem in 8 Mile. I'd just be, like, writing on the back of napkins. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> whatever pan is handy. There's a, <laughs> there was a Michelle Branch album, I think. It, it was called Hotel Paper. And I, she had written all the lyrics so while mm. she was touring on hotel paper, right? Mm. Just like, because when you go to stay at a hotel, a lot of times they have this little cheap pad of paper there and a cheap <laughs> little big yeah. pen. But she created an entire body of work. I love it. With the things that are perceived to be That's throwaway. Cool. Because ultimately, it's all throwaway anyway. Mm. All of the memories on a long enough timeline, they're all throwaway. Yeah. All of the accessories we have to capture those memories, whether it's the, the nicest 
binder or the nicest notebook or the nicest pen. It's all throwaway at the end of the day. Yeah. And just because it's going to eventually terminate or expire, that doesn't mean you need to do away with it now. I believe that capturing memories is a very beautiful thing as long as we remember to give ourselves permission to rendezvous with the reasons that motivated us to capture the memory. So a lot of times we spend so much time capturing memories in the form of taking photos, documenting things in a journal, creating these little artifacts that symbolize precious moments from the past. And then we forget the most important thing, which is to remember to indulge those moments. Mm. And so if you write a journal, create some space, make a commitment to set aside some time to go back and say, this is the day of the week or the month or the quarter where I will read my journal and I will see what I have learned. I will reflect on the things I've written in the past from the state of consciousness I now occupy. So many people, they write journals and journals and journals and they have boxes of them. And it's like, hey, when's the last time you read that? I oh, love that. haven't written it since I wrote it. Mm. You know, give yourself permission to check it out. Yeah. yeah. And, and give yourself permission at the same time to not need it. If you get value from it, great. Mm. If, you, if you're compelled by it, wonderful. That's the reason I write every morning, not because I'm committed to sitting down and writing one page a day and 1,000 <laughs> words a day. Like that sounds like a prison. Mm. Now I've set up this, but no, it's like I get to sit down. I, I, I just said it accidentally. I get to sit down and do this. I'm mm. compelled enough by it that I devote myself to it, right? Not the other way around. I was sitting down with a friend of TKs yesterday, Kamal, and I was uh, killing I some him my brother. But go ahead. yeah, yeah, I, I was I was killing some sacred cows for him at, because we were, he was talking about like commitment and committing yourself to, and I'm like, well, commitment works really well until you uh, find you stumble across any inconvenience whatsoever, right? We get, we commit ourselves to some diet or some exercise plan. I commit to going to the gym this year, hmm. but then as soon as that becomes inconvenient. We set aside our commitments, right? But if you're devoted to something, you show up no matter what. Regardless, mm -hmm. you don't have to be committed to it. It's some level beyond commitment. Mm. Got another question here. This one is from JP. I'm JP from Vancouver, Canada. Curious to know more about your opinions on coffee shop and coffee drinking culture. Uh, both of you have mentioned that you would have worked as baristas had the blog not been so successful. And you've also mentioned that you both love drinking coffee. But without asking you to defend yourselves, I'm hoping to learn more about the value you get from coffee since it has no nutritional benefits and could even be bad for you or the environment, depending on who you ask. Also, the surrounding culture can sometimes seem a bit pretentious or excessive. Um, I personally can't drink coffee due to health problems, but I do drink alcohol. I'm wondering if you feel the same way about coffee as I do about alcohol, that it's a fun activity I enjoy moderation and get value from the social aspect of, or is there something else about coffee and its surrounding culture that I'm missing that you guys can shed light on? Woo, so good. Mm -mm -mm. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's okay to just enjoy something and not need to celebrate about yeah. the reasons that we enjoy it quite often. So here's the thing. I love my wife, mm -hmm. right? I would never say I love coffee. But I love my wife. Mm -hmm. And I could list for you 27 reasons why I love my wife, but I could map those 27 reasons onto another person. And I don't feel the same way that I feel about my wife as mm -hmm. I do that other person. 
And so there are these intangibles, right? Mm. So just because you get value from something, you can say, I like this. You can say, I like wearing the red shirt or I like wearing the blue shirt. Well, why do you like wearing the red shirt over the blue shirt? I don't know. I just like it. I enjoy it. It's my preference, right? And so I think there's there's something about that that as soon as we we pin down the butterfly, it loses all of its beauty because it loses its flight. It lo- it's it's unanimated now. Mm. Now, yes, it's true that I I get a lot of value from coffee. I do enjoy it. I will concede, however, that the caffeine is something I'm certainly addicted to, mm-hmm. and. I think that like alcohol is a problem. I don't drink at all because I know I have an addictive personality. My one vice is, is coffee. Although there are certainly a lot of benefits to coffee that alcohol certainly doesn't have. Professor Sean and I were talking about this earlier today. Maybe I'll have you pull up some of what those benefits might be because it's been well studied at this point. Although there are quite a few downsides as well. If you have some toxic coffee or some moldy coffee, you can... You, you, you can harm your gut microbiome, mm. your, your, the, the flora in your gut. Um, you can cause all kinds of issues as well. Yeah. And I agree that it could also potentially be harmful to the environment uh, with all of the pesticides and everything that we use on our crops. Coffee is also one of those crops, just mm. like all of the soybeans and corn and all the toxic junk that we're spraying on those things. It doesn't mean that the crops are bad. It means what we're doing to the crops are harmful to human beings. Before mm. we talk about some of those benefits, though, I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts. Yeah. I just love when people get obsessed with something. It's mm. like, even if I'm not interested in it, for example, um, Jordan No More is obsessed with watches. Like, I don't wear watches. I, I'm not particularly uh, attracted to, to that to that genre but when I hear Jordan talk about it, it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And like, I can get lost in hearing him uh, talk about his obsession with watches. So with coffee, it's one of those things that uh, I love to hear people who are obsessed talk about it. But then, yeah, I enjoy the caffeine. I enjoy the taste. So it's really not, it's really not the, you know, the coffee, uh, uh, the you know, this pretentious thing of like, oh, I like my coffee black. Yes. Like, let me talk about my... <laughs> Let me talk about my coffee experience. It's really about understanding from, you know, uh, sprouting that first little tree sprout to getting the cherry and removing the bean and storing it. And ro- I mean, there's so many different processes or steps along the way in that process that I love learning about that because it just helps me appreciate it that much more because there's so much attention to detail. It makes me think of wine, for example. Like I really enjoy like a good glass of wine for the same reason. Like uh, my sister-in-law, she is a sommelier and loves talking about the process of wine and the food pairings. And it is pretty amazing. Like I had, until I met her, like I really didn't get the whole um, food pairing with the wine, but then she kind of like started to show uh, my wife and I just some different things and it blew my mind. And Mm. like the, the fact that it's really tasty, but also that obsession piece of it is what really keeps me interested in things like that. So, yeah, I'm not going to just like, you know, like she said, there's no reason to defend um, our, our uh, you know, our enjoyment of coffee. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where, yes, when you 
when you get a cup of coffee from someone who's truly obsessed with every single step of that process, it really makes it a, a pretty unique experience. But let me tell you, someone who is not obsessed with the coffee, it's really easy to get a crappy cup of coffee yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I do not enjoy at all. <laughs> I think that's a great point because quite often you there are much there are many, many, many exponentially more unenjoyable cups of coffee than yes. there are truly exquisite mm-hmm. ones. And it's finding those exquisite ones. It's part of that whole process. Yeah. 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 Shout out to JP for asking this question, because I think the world needs more questions like this that are framed in this way and that have that spirit behind it. One of the things that this question and your response to it makes me realize is that there's an important distinction between justification and introspection. Justification is outward facing. Introspection is inward facing. Justification is when you try to dig up reasons to make sense to someone else about why you do what you do in order Mm. to get them to perceive it as legitimate. Introspection Mm. is when you go within because you want to make sense to yourself. You want to develop a deeper appreciation for what drives you and why you do things. Mm -hmm. And justification is sometimes appropriate, but in many cases, it's best to opt out of those games of trying to defend yourself to other people. But introspection, if you can do it without a sense of duty, obligation, and anxiety can be very valuable to just take the mundane things like, I enjoy these routines, and then ask yourself, well, what does that say about me? Mm. What is it about that that I enjoy? It can sometimes help you bring a greater sense of playfulness to whatever it is that you do. Mm. Um, it could be useful to make sense of yourself to yourself. Uh, for me, I drink coffee because it tastes good. Mm. I enjoy it. And I've tried to get into tea because I think for some reason tea is cooler than coffee. And I just can't get into it like I do coffee because I just enjoy coffee. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes in order to try to, you know, keep myself from over consuming it, because I I can drink coffee any time of the day. Mm. It never gets old for me. I can drink coffee at nine o'clock at night and I can drink cups back to back. And and so I love it so much. Sometimes I'll just use hot water or tea to get myself to do a little something else, something different late at night. Um, But one of the things I do like about coffee culture is that I think it creates a context where um, I think it was Jason Silva, who I first heard use this term, where idea sex is possible. Because when you go into coffee shop shops, there's something about the open nature of like the space. And there's something about people who go to coffee shops and the way they converse. There's a culture there where you're more likely to talk to strangers Mm. and and discuss ideas or overhear interesting conversations and get new insights in a way that's just not happening at the library or in a restaurant or some other kind of space. And so I think people who like going to coffee shops, they know they can sit at home and drink coffee, but there's something in the air, man, that's kind of inspiring and, and infectious. Yeah. There, there is something JP brought up about the pretentiousness of coffee. Mm. And I do, I get it. Like there are certain coffee shops you walk into and you're like, oh, they take themselves way too serious. Yeah. But for someone who is obsessed with mm-hmm. coffee in the process, I love those places. Yes. I love when they take it serious. But for someone who's just looking for, you know, the, the caffeine pick-me-up, the, the, you know, double caramel macchiato, six-pump, fra- I mean, like, oh. if that's what you're looking for, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's just that, like, that it's is... It's gross. Well, it, <laughs> it is covering up... Um, it's, it's just covering up uh, a really nice, a really nice cup of coffee. And sometimes you got to cover it up because of it being a bad cup of coffee. But think about like, 
Um, I also enjoy a good uh, scotch or a good whiskey. Mm -hmm. So imagine getting like a really, really nice whiskey, something, you know, that is, it doesn't come around often, very special. You hand it to someone and then they pour a Coke in it and they mix it. Mm. It's again, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But it's like, it just takes away the nuance of, of that fine whiskey. And it's the same thing with coffee. Yeah, I would say, yes, it is pretentious and there's nothing wrong with being pretentious. What sure. pretentious Uh-oh. means is that you're willing to make something more important to you than it actually is. Yes. And that is what devotion is all about, yeah. right? And so the problem is we treat pretentiousness as though it's a bad thing. And why mm. is that? Because we are self-righteous. And, point. and self-righteousness is a disease that sort of moralizes mm. everything from atrocities mm. to the most benign preferences, right? Mm -hmm. No, coffee is better than tea or (laughs) LeBron is better than Jordan, which is an objective truth. Right, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But no, you're right though. As soon as we start to like treat it uh, dogmatically, like that is where it starts to alienate and separate. Like for me with coffee, I take it seriously and I can go on and on about it, but it's about bringing you in with me and helping you see why I'm passionate about this little liquidy black drink that gets me going in the morning. Yeah, It's like, I, I don't do that to be like, to put myself on a pedestal. It's more about bringing you into the conversation. In some cases, you know, when you know someone Mm -hmm. and you know what their interests are and then they're acting as if it's something else because a new person is around. Mm. Yeah, you can know that they're being pretentious. But I think, like Josh says, a lot of times when we judge people as pretentious, it's really because they're just more serious about something Mm -hmm. than we are. Mm -hmm. What we really mean in many cases is it would be pretentious for me to act as if what you're saying is interesting. Yes, it'd be inauthentic to pretend that I had the same level of care, desire, commitment, devotion to that task, that interest, that project Mm -hmm. as you. And so if I pretend that I'm being pretentious, but if I truly am just devoted to it, obsessed yeah. with it. Mm. Man, yeah, it might be technically pretentious, but yeah. I look at that and I say, wow, yeah. that level of dedication is impressive. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing before we talk about some of the benefits of coffee is, TK alluded to this, but during the sort of enlightenment period, the Renaissance period, 16th century, I mean, this is where everyone, because drinking water was a dangerous thing in cities. You could die from it or get really sick. And so people were drinking beer all day, right? Mm -hmm. And just walking around drunk and a stupor and constantly inebriated. But then the advent of the coffee house and the proliferation of the coffee house, all of a sudden now you had people who were caffeinated themselves and then meeting in these spaces where they're discussing these ideas, having the idea sex that they were having. And that is how a lot of what we understand today, that's that, that's the genesis of our deeper understanding of the way that the world works. Let's talk about some benefits that, that coffee might have, Professor Sean. Now, these are all correla- uh, correlation studies, but there are hundreds, if not thousands of them, um, linked to a lower risk of type 2 diabetes, uh, lower risk of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, um, decreased weight in men and women, lower risk of depression, hmm. um, could protect against liver conditions, increased heart health, increased longevity, um, and of course, athletic performance. Wow. Um, it's also worth noting, though, that in every study I've ever read about coffee, a cup of coffee 
is usually defined as like six ounces. Yes. Um, I, I drink four times that, you know, <laughs> most, most days. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to limit myself to two now, uh, three max. So I, I drink one and a half to three cups a day because back in my corporate days, I would drink 20 cups of coffee a yeah. day. Yeah, he would. And, well, Starbucks too. Yeah. And so like, they're the, <laughs> so I would do like 10 of the 20 ounces, whatever that is. I, I don't know, 200 ounces divided by six is probably more than, yes. than 20 cups of coffee a day. Yeah. JP, thank you for your question. We're going to move on to some social media questions here. We've got one from Brian on Facebook. How do you convince someone that antique is not a synonym for junk? I don't want to convince anyone of anything. <laughs> How do I convince you to not convince people? <laughs> so, Because to convince someone is to unlove them. Now, why do you care what they think it is? Because junk is perspectival, right? Mm-hmm. TK could have the most beautiful antique that he really enjoys. It's an antique chair he sits on every night, or maybe it's just an antique decoration that's not particularly useful to him, but he finds great joy and mm. beauty from having it in his home. Now, I could do one of two things. I could say, well, that is junk or it's an antique, or guess what? It might be both. It might be junk to me if I were to take it home and put it in my living room. But I can also understand that it is a thing that adds value to his life and it happens to be an antique. The truth is many antiques are junk. Mm-hmm. Most junk aren't necessarily antiques though. Yeah. You know, when, when I hear that question, how do I convince people that antiques are not a synonym for junk? I think the question underneath the question is, how do I convince someone or rather, how do I deal with someone who sees my treasure as garbage? And I think if you must convince, the best way to do it is to indulge that treasure, to enjoy it, to spend more time delighting yourself in that treasure than in defending it to someone else. Because Mm. when people can see how happy it makes you, how healthy it makes you, that's the best chance you're going to get for them to say, hey, I'm not into what you're into, but if it makes you that healthy and it makes you that happy, have at it and enjoy it. But it's best to just not even focus on convincing because there's a difference between following a dream and debating a dream. And your Mm -hmm. dreams are not there to be debated. Your dreams are there to actually be followed. And so many times in life, we miss out on whatever our own definition of the good life is because we're wasting so much time defending it to people who have a different conception of the good life. Mm. So tell me if I'm interpreting this wrong. Brian has an antique. Mm Mm-hmm that someone is telling him, no, no, you have junk. Mm -hmm. And he's asking, okay, how do I convince this person that uh, what I have is something that I, I, it's a treasure to me. Um, It's not a piece of junk. So yes, I agree with what TK said. The the question is, how can, even if it is junk, let's just call it junk, Mm -hmm. but it's meaningful junk to you. Mm. Um, How do you, how do you show someone that that junk is adding value to your life? It's exactly what TK was just talking about. It's it's indulging in it and really showing how this thing um, creates whatever you're trying to create with it. But, you know, ultimately, this is the, the question to me, if I was Brian, wouldn't be how can I convince someone of something? The question would be is how can I how could I uh, let this judgment bother me less? And that's really what it comes down to. So, Brian, um, I give you permission to have your preferences Hmm. and uh, to not feel bad about them. Yeah. There's no reason to feel bad about your preferences. And it's only junk if it's getting in the way for you. Right. right? And so most antiques are probably not essential. 
That's okay. Mm-hmm. As minimalists, we don't own only essential things. We own some things that are non-essential. What do I mean by that? I could live without it just fine. Yeah. But non-essential things that add value to my life aren't junk because I can appreciate that thing. I can enjoy it. It might amplify or enhance my experience of life. That is wonderful. But here's the thing. Just because something is an antique doesn't mean that it's not junk either. Mm. Well, no, it's 100 years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, if I crap in a box and leave it out for 100 years, it's an antique, right? No, <laughs> it's still crap. Antique crap. <laughs> Patent pending. <laughs> well, you know, the, the beautiful things that the antique, the beautiful thing that the antique industry symbolizes is that whatever that thing is you're afraid to let go, there is someone somewhere who will treasure the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. And that is something that can help a lot of people get over the hump. It's not just about you saying no to something. It's about you creating this beautiful experience for another human being to take delight in something that you created or that served you in the past. And so antique stores capture that. Absolutely. We got another question here. This one is from Bethany on Facebook. How do you go from being a serious night owl to being an early bird? I really want and need to make that transition. Mm. You've got to make sure that like you legitimately can work with that schedule. Because I think about Josh getting up at what, 3 a.m., 4 a.m.? Yeah, most days I get up somewhere between 3.30 and, and 4.45. Yeah, and it's like there's a piece in me that's like, man, I really admire that, would love to get up that early. Another piece of me uh, admires the aesthetic that Josh has, um, that him and Bex have in their home. Um, But in order to get up at 3.30 a.m., in order to have that aesthetic, there is a fundamental change that I would have to do in my life that for me isn't it's it's not worth it just to get up at 3.30 a.m. Because to get up at 3.30 a.m., you have to go to bed at Usually eight o'clock, maybe seven forty-five. Right, and I'm just eating dinner at eight o'clock. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's even worse than that because we're told that like habit change. There's a whole lot around habit change right now. People, you hear, you've heard it a thousand times in the last year. People talk about habit change, and here's one thing I'll tell you: that changing your habits won't change your life because you don't have the disposition to get up at three thirty a.m. I don't necessarily even want to. I didn't choose to. I get up that time on my own. This morning, I woke up at 4.04 a.m. And I just woke up. There was no alarm that got me up. Now, I did go to bed early. I am just predisposed to want to go to bed earlier, to get up earlier. That is the time of day that works best for me. That's why I never prescribe this to anyone. You Mm -hmm. should wake up at Mm -hmm. 3.30. I think that would radically disrupt someone's life. It might change your life, but it's probably going to change it for the worse because now you're groggy, you're tired throughout the day, maybe you're experiencing brain fog, you're not getting enough sleep. However, I'll give you some practical insights here. If maybe you do have that disposition, but your culture, this is what happened to me when I was in my teen, late teens, early 20s, my culture was like, you're supposed to stay out late. Mm -hmm. And so I would stay out till midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., but that's not my disposition. And so how did I fix that? Well, I started going to bed every night at the same time. Yeah. And back then it was, it was like, I have to be in bed by 11. And then eventually it was like, I have to be in bed by 10. Right. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I start waking up earlier and seeing the personal benefits for me, I write 
in the mornings. I exercise in the mornings. I read in the mornings. And mm-hmm. the first thing I do now is an ice bath. I also don't prescribe that to anyone either, right? Because, well, I think it would make most people regret waking up at all <laughs> because you're like dealing with the pain. It's it, it's the most difficult thing I do each morning mm. is I'll spend three minutes in ice cold water. My body thinks it's dying, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that you should do that. Just like I don't think you should wake up at 3.30 a.m. However, there are some practical things you can do if it is your, if you're predisposed to do it. It's going to bed every day at the same time, no matter what, and waking up every day at the same time, no matter what. Even if that means at first, oh, all right, it's 8 p.m. and I'm wide awake. I'm going to lay in bed. I'm just going to lay there. And the sleep might not come for three hours, Mm -hmm. right? I'm just going to lay there. I got a few practical things you can do to improve your sleep. But TK, first, I'd love to hear some insights from you. Man, I'm just curious as to if you if you have been going to bed at eight o'clock for so long, how did you watch Family Matters before we had <laughs> streaming? <laughs> he, he would uh, do VHS recordings. Oh, my God. Get it on TBR. Because okay. I was racking my brain the whole time. Well, I just got the bootlegs. <laughs> Family Matters bootlegs. Patenting. You know, there's something helpful, I think, about not attaching some adjustment you might need to work for life or some new agenda that you have to your identity. How do I become a morning person when I am a night owl? Maybe it's possible for you to just continue being the person that you are, but then to ask yourself, hey, what are some adjustments I can make to be able to meet this goal for this period of time, Mm -hmm. right? Because I, I've tried so many different things and I don't think there's anything that's more true of me than the fact that I'm a night owl. When left to my own devices, I, I just work better when I stay up late and I get more done and so on. Um, however, there are some priorities I have that motivate me to get up but beyond external obligation. When it comes to the days we're in here, if I get up at 4.30 and I get out no later than five, man, what a great drive here. It's like 45 minutes and it's just free flowing. And I love it so much that I'm excited to get up at that time because mm-hmm. I love that drive. And then I get to go to a spot that I have. There's a monastery that I go to and I can just spend the first couple of hours of my day meditating. And if I need to sleep, I'll go to sleep right there in that monastery. You know what I mean? I got the ball here, so nobody bothers me. But <laughs> I don't I don't look at myself as being a morning person, as somebody that can ever be what Josh is by nature but it's just an adjustment that I make because it benefits me to make it on those days. And so Mm. maybe not putting the weight up on yourself of redefining who you are, but just looking for some tools that can help you do what you need to do for this time. Yeah, I would love to hear the why behind this question because that's that's really what's going to give uh, going to give them leverage here because for you, the why is like, oh, I get to get up. It's only a 45 minute drive. I get to go meditate for a couple hours. There's a lot of inspirational uh, reasons why you want to get up that early. If it's just because, well, Josh gets up at 3.30, so I feel like I should get up at 3.30. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really yeah. not sustainable why. Yeah. It sounds to me like the why here is, I feel like society says I would be a better person if I just woke up earlier. Mm. And the truth is, well, no, you might be the best version of yourself if you're getting an adequate amount of sleep. So I do want to talk to you about some sleep hygiene. But before I do, I think, TK, you brought up a really good point. Whenever we go out and tour, our tour stops are often 7 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock at night. It's my bedtime. I'm getting ready to go on stage and speak in front of a 1,000 people. <laughs> but 
I will make that adjustment because the reward is worth it. And my sleep does suffer, but it's for a temporary period of time. And if I had to do this show every night at 8 p.m., I probably wouldn't do it just because um, I wouldn't be the best version of myself. I can't write afternoon generally. Mm. I mean, I can, but the words aren't nearly as lucid. They don't come as easily. I don't find that the writing is works as well. I want to put my head through a wall much more. But if I'm writing at 4 a.m., mm. oh, it's just bliss. But it takes some sleep hygiene yeah. in order to make that work. So here are a few things that I do that have helped me from a how-to perspective, from a very mechanical perspective that have radically improved my sleep. First thing is, whenever possible, I go to bed at the same time every night. Mm, gotta. I go to bed the same time every night. Yep. Second thing I do, and this is probably the most important thing, grounding. I mm. sleep on a grounding mat. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to sell you one. Uh, we have a former podcast guest, Clint Ober, one of our most popular episodes ever, the grounding episode. Yeah. So many people have found value in that. So many people have experienced the benefits of grounding mm -hmm. at night, sleeping on a grounding mat. Yeah which radically improves people's sleep, reduces inflammation, reconnects you with the earth, and there's a ton of science behind yeah. it. You can find the book called Earthing at earthing.com, and you can find sleep mats over there as well. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I like the grounding too. Um, you can totally go outside in your yard though and ground for 15, 20 minutes. I mean, you're not going to get the full benefits, but I'm only saying that because you don't have to buy anything to ground. Um, uh, just go out in your yard and try it. Like there is a... Yeah, there, there's a significant difference that I started feeling like once, yeah, once I grounded. And again, I always say it might be placebo, but if it is, that's okay. I'm okay with that. Placebo works too. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm fine I mean, with it if it was. Yeah. There, there are too many double-blind placebo-controlled studies yes. on yeah, it yeah. To, to show that it's not placebo, that, mm -hmm. it that it radically reduces inflammation if you're an inflamed person. Yes. And even people I know, like my wife, who are she's a paragon of health. She saw marginal improvements in her sleep through mm -hmm. the sleep tracking data. Yeah. People with chronic illnesses, I think about Social Jess, one of our team members uh, who has graduated from The Minimalists. Yes. She, as soon as we got her a grounding mat for her bed, she showed me her sleep data from her aura ring. Mm. And it, her heart rate mm. variability changed, That's her resting wild. heart rate changed. Yeah. A bunch, I mean, changed immediately for her. Yes. And she was dealing with a chronic illness. So that makes sense that it improved her health and the related statistics around yeah. that. Yeah. And so grounding, yeah, you're right, Ryan. You can grounding is free. That's the thing that Clint Ober tried to express when he was on here. Like you don't need to buy anything to go grounding. Mm -hmm. However, if you're sleeping in a bed, you're not grounded at night. And if you want to ground, the best money I have ever spent is buy literally the best money in my entire life that I've ever spent is buying a earthing or a grounding mat huh. mattress cover for my bed. I have the grounding sheets as mm. well. I'm sitting on a grounding mat right now, as are the two of yeah, you. I'm standing on one. And what I can tell you is that the biggest change to my sleep and the biggest change to my life overall has been grounding. I ground 80 plus percent of the day now because yeah. the the benefits are in the dose. So getting out for 15 minutes is certainly better than nothing. But if you can ground for 50% of the day mm -hmm. or at least a third of the day while you're sleeping, 
Wonderful. A few other things for sleep hygiene really quickly. Uh, Either earplugs. I use a company called Earpiece, like P-E-A-C-E, Earpiece. But I also, I've replaced those now with the sleep phones that I use. Mm. Uh, Sleep phones. So I have, uh, it's like a headband. So I look like Alex Caruso and uh, except uh, I have hair. And uh, I listen to like this meditative soundscape sound bath at night mm-hmm. as I am sleeping. And that really helps with any outside noise or just having some earplugs to help with any outside noise. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, either a sleep mask and or blackout curtains at mm-hmm. home. I don't have the blackout curtain, so I use a sleep mask. Uh, doing both can be really helpful if you live in an area with a lot of light pollution. In Ojai, we don't have any light pollution, and so uh, I don't need the blackout curtains, but that really helps with yeah. with all that artificial light bombarding your house. Yep. And speaking of artificial light, cutting the screens out. Any blue light after dark is it's critical because it so disrupts, it tricks your circadian rhythm and makes you think that you're staring at the sun. As soon as the sun goes down, put on a pair of blue blockers and yeah, that will help dramatically. Don't eat uh, more than two hours, I'm sorry, less than two hours before bed. Yes. Uh, Alcoholic, six hours before bed. Getting up in the morning with the sun and Mm -hmm. getting some sun first thing in the morning, that's that's really good to kind of help reset your circadian rhythm. And looking toward the sun in the morning when I go outside in the morning, it's not, it's still dark out when I'm outside, but mm-hmm. as soon as the sun starts coming up, I'll go outside and do my stretches. Mm-hmm. I'm looking toward the sun in the morning, not staring directly at right. it, but looking toward the sun. And what that does is it notifies your body, oh, it is mm-hmm. morning. We are awake. We've reset our circadian and, rhythm. And as the sun is coming up, like you can totally look over the horizon and get some, yeah, get some good rays. Hey, I got to hear you weigh in on just one quick thing, because To me, it sounds like the question was coming from a place of my life has changed in such a way that I got to do this. Mm -hmm. This isn't just me thinking that it's Mm -hmm. a better thing. Like maybe it's a new job or something. Could be a baby, Mm -hmm. whatever it may be, but I got to make this change. Mm -hmm. What do you say to people who feel like I don't have the option? I'm a night owl. That's who I am. But I don't have the option. I got to make myself behave like a morning person. I got to act like you. Everything is optional. And Mm -hmm. we lie to ourselves and say that isn't an option. Now, there are huge trade-offs that we're not Mm -hmm. willing to take on. Right. But as Thomas Sowell says, you know, they're they're all trade-offs, basically, right? And so... Ultimately, am I willing to make this trade-off in order to take that job or in order to have uh, to pacify the family or whatever it might be? And if the answer is yes, then, well, that's a hell yes. I'm going to embrace it. Just like when we're going out on tour. It's a hell yes Yes. for me. Even though I'd much rather our tour stops be at noon. (laughs) But people aren't going to come out noon on a Wednesday. No, they wouldn't. And so I just decided that this is a hell yes. And so I'm going to have to make some adjustments. That's why I asked about the why. Because I'm curious with the same thing. Because it's like, you know, if it was... uh, Oh, I'm making this job. It pays me $6 million every shift, but I have to do third shift. And it's like, okay, I mean, you know, is the money worth it to try and change who you are at your core? There's not a right or wrong answer there. But yeah, that's why I was very interested in the why as well, TK. Yeah. Alabama, let's save Joe's question for a future episode because we have a question here from Instagram. Rachel has something for us. How do you distinguish just-in-case items for just-for-when items when it comes to packing go bags? Go, you know, it's funny. So, yeah, the go bag 
It all depends on where you live at, I feel like. Because when we lived in Montana, we had to be prepared for very different things than living here in Southern California. So in Montana, uh, in the wintertime, you're preparing with chains, you're preparing with emergency blankets, maybe a little bit of food. Where in California, you're preparing for potential, you know, earthquakes that are going to knock out the power grid and you got to go somewhere. So, I mean, that's, I think, the first thing to consider is where do you live and what are you preparing for? You'll hear me and Ryan and TK talk about just-in-case items and just-in-case being the three most dangerous words in the English Mm, language because they encourage us. They don't just give us permission, but just-in-case sounds virtuous. I'll hold on to this just-in-case. And so let's make a distinction real quick. We have something called the Minimalist Rule Book, 16 Rules for Living with Less, and three of those rules are applicable here. I want to make a distinction. The first one is just in case items. Anything Mm -hmm. I'm holding on to just in case, I can get rid of because I'm not using it and I can replace it for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes Mm -hmm. from wherever I am. That rule has worked for us 100% of the time. Our theory is it works 99% of the time, but it gives you permission to let go of tens of thousands of just-in-case items. Just-for-when items are things that we purchase, often consumables, that we purchase over a period of time. We know we're going to use it within a period of time, but it may not fit into some of our other rules, Mm. the seasonality rule or whatever. And so because I don't buy my toilet paper or my shampoo one square at a time or one drop at a time, respectively, I buy in bulk, right? Mm -hmm. I buy enough that I can store it, but I know that I'm going to use it. I'm buying it just for when I need it. However, there's this third category, emergency items. Now, what is an emergency item? A true emergency item is an actual just-in-case item that I hope I never have to use. Yeah. So it's the inverse of the story we tell ourselves about a just-in-case item. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hold on to this just in case. I might need it someday. I hope I have to use this someday. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Emergency items are, I'm going to have this, but I hope I never have to use it. Jumper cables. Right. right? Yeah. First aid kit I have in my car. I have almost nothing in my car. I have a first aid kit there. Yeah. I hope I never have to use it, although I have had to use it before. Mm-hmm. Usually when my daughter cuts or scrapes or falls, there's some sort of Band-Aid and antiseptic wipes and, and different things there that I can have mm-hmm. just for an emergency, right? Uh, the chains when you're in Montana. So yes, it, it does have to do with the location that you live in, mm-hmm. also your needs, also the story you tell yourself. Because Yes, you can try to prepare for everything, Mm -hmm. but if that preparation is weighing you down, then those preparation items are getting in the way. You talk about a go bag because we did a whole episode. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it was a good one. About emergency items, Yeah, right? And what Ryan and I talked about, each of us have a go bag in our homes, which is an emergency item. If Within 30 seconds, I have to leave my house and grab just one thing. It is that go bag. And so it has the essentials, which Ryan and I talked about in depth in that episode. So I'm not going to go through them again. But understanding that I hope I never have to grab that bag. There are no just for when items in there. There are some emergency items that I'm holding on to just in case the absolute worst case scenario happens. And there's a boundary. It's the size of the bag. Right. It cannot extend beyond that boundary. Yeah. You know, the sinister thing about just in case is that it can apply to anything. 
I mean, is there anything out there for which there is no hypothetical scenario where you might possibly need it? Yeah, hold on to these notes because uh, there's a good back and I might need some scrap paper later. Well, and they might go into the Minimalist Museum someday. (laughs) Or, hey, I don't like that kind of food, but, hey, if it's the last thing on Earth and I need it to survive, I'm going to eat it. Mm -hmm. So maybe I should keep it around just in case. Whenever you find yourself thinking in terms of just in case, you've got to give yourself a set of conditions that you're willing to be held accountable to. When am I willing to say no to the just-in-case line of reasoning? Because you could literally go into a store, Mm -hmm. any store, and find a just-in-case scenario that can motivate you to buy that thing. Of course. That's why all those things are in the store, just in case someone needs to purchase them to use them. (laughs) I love that. Wait, hold on real quick. Let let the grocery store, the retail store, hold all the just-in-case items. Now you have access to them when you need them. Yeah, that's a good one. Now, the the go bag, I mean, again, what are you preparing to go from or go too. Like if you are uh, literally need a bag to get to your in-laws house who is, you know, 30 minutes away and um, you run out of gas and you need to walk there. I mean, getting clear on where you're going to, like that's going to help you prepare for the go bag. But going back to your location, I mean, a go bag in Montana is a very different go bag than Los Angeles. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. During the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. So you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. Looks like we have a question here from David. It was crazy hearing Aubrey Marcus talk about being in an isolation tank. Are there negative consequences to depriving yourself like this? Oh, well, give me 60 seconds. Clear the lane for me, TK. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, he's already starting to dribble. I need to ISO this. (laughs) He's already dribbling. (laughs) All right. Fake pass. <laughs> Nobody knows what we're talking about right now. And, and Jordan's totally missing all, all the moves that Ryan was doing. He didn't have him on camera the whole time he was doing that. Man, that would have been the best Giphy, too. Oh, or yeah. Jif, Jiffy, Giphy. All, right, all, right. all right, David, here's what I have to say to you. Short-term deprivation is a spotlight for value. What Aubrey Marcus was talking about in that TikTok video that David's commenting about here is... When we deprive ourselves for a period of time, it helps us understand what is useful to us, what is valuable to us, what is access to us, what is getting in the way, what will serve us, Mm. what enhances my life, what downgrades my life, what upgrades my life. The only way we can understand that is if we remove it for a period of time to truly see the value. Now, there's an extreme version of this, and it's putting yourself in sensory deprivation for six days straight. You don't have to do that to temporarily deprive yourself so you can figure out what you actually value. Hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, Ryan Nicodemus, we got 60 seconds. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, Isolation is not deprivation. It is uh, very similar to what Josh was talking about here. When we take something out of our life 
when we, uh, especially when it comes to um, this isolation that Aubrey Marcus was talking about, where he literally went into darkness. He had no sound. He could uh, basically feel around and stick his hand in some avocado toast and know that that's where his food was and, and eat and, and be sustained. Um, but taking that away for a temporary period of time is not deprivation. That is something that allows us to really uh, get clear on what we appreciate. So I can only imagine like the... Um, the, the, the last day there where he's brought out and complete darkness and given the light and how much more he appreciated just that, that sense that he, uh, that he took for granted. I think it's spot on. So as a metaphor, it's showing you the benefits of the light. The things that we take for granted, mm. we can temporarily deprive ourselves, but it doesn't mean you get rid of it forever. Aubrey Marcus didn't go there. Yeah. And say, you know what? I'm giving up all sensory perception for the rest of my life. Yeah. But hey, let me let me find the gratitude that already exists that I've covered up with overindulgence. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Nothing is more dangerous than a confrontation with your true self. The ultimate game of hide and seek is the one that is taking place every day between the roles that we play in order to fit in, be a normal human being, and that more substantial, spontaneous self lying underneath the surface, waiting for the opportunity to shine through. When you use ascetic discipline to connect with that deeper self, that is the complete opposite of deprivation. That is self-liberation. That is self-actualization. It is only when you embrace a path of deprivation because of some worship of pain as an intrinsic good that you lose your way. Change feels dangerous only because extinction is the price you have to pay for evolution. Mm -hmm. In order to become the person you truly want to be, you might have to let some of these roles that make you familiar and secure die. And that feels dangerous, but only because you're coming to life. Mm, that preaches. We're going to check in with yes. the live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one very exciting thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. We, for the first time ever, are launching a decluttering course. Yes. <laughs> 67 so ways to excited. declutter your closet. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it is called Simplify Everything. And we start, it's five weeks. We start with the stuff, but then, and we help you simplify the stuff get rid of the excess stuff, identify the excess stuff, provide some boundaries, some rules, some tools, some solutions to let go. But that's just the first week. The other four weeks are identifying all of these other forms of clutter. For example, relationship clutter or calendar clutter mm -hmm. or digital clutter or money or financial clutter. All of these different types of clutter that are cluttering our lives beyond the stuff. It's five weeks total. It's 17 video lessons, 45 clutter problem areas, 135 decluttering solutions, a 30-page workbook, and of course, student forums. So you can have access to other people who are taking the course the same time as you and much, much more. The course launches on May 29th, 2023, and it's open for 72 hours only. You can enroll for 72 hours starting May 29th. So what I want you to do is head on over to simplifyeverything.xyz 
someone parked on the dot com. So don't go there. <laughs> Simplify everything dot X, Y, Z. And just there's a landing page there right now. Put your email address in that box. We'll never send you spam or junk or advertisements, obviously. But we'll let you know as soon as the course opens up. It'll be open for 72 hours. And over the course of five weeks, we've spent months and months and months preparing this, filming this, refilming this, re-re-filming this at this point to create something that is meaningful and lasting for you. There's a lot there. We're going to help you simplify everything. Simplifyeverything.xyz to get more information. Malabama, let's check in with the Patreon live stream. What do you got for us? We have a comment here that came from patron Kristen. She said, one of your controversial guests might have saved my health. In 2017, during my third pregnancy with my mother dying of cancer, I was looking for ways to better my own health and avoid her Mm. fate. Enter the plant-based diet. I remained vegetarian until 2021 when I lost my dad and I got so depressed that I stopped caring what I ate. Naturally, this caused some weight issues for me. And a few months ago, I decided to return to my vegetarian diet to help get back to a healthier weight. Mm. I hadn't been eating a ton of meat the last two years, but I felt like cutting it out was still a good place to start. So there I am a few weeks in feeling like crap, thinking it's just a hiccup and I'll get past it. When you guys have Dr. Paul Saladino on the show, it took me several days to listen to that episode because frankly, I just didn't agree with anything he was saying. But after I finally finished it, I decided to get blood work done and go, and to my horror, my ferritin levels were a nine. Who Mm. knows how long they had been that low? It's no wonder I felt terrible all the time. I abandoned the plant-based diet and bought a bottle of grass-fed beef liver capsules. The difference in my energy levels have been life-changing. P.S. I'm so excited you guys added TK to the show. That's awesome. That's awesome. We're excited too. Hey. Kristen, here's what I'll say is, yeah, we had the segment where we talked about mo- many of our most controversial guests. We don't even realize they're controversial until after the fact. Yeah. And people often are frustrated because they think it's some sort of prescription. Like we're saying, we bring someone on like Dr. Paul Saladino, or we bring on Rich Roll, who's a very healthy vegan athlete. He's been a vegan for 16 years. And I say, wow, that seems to really work well for him. And he has some great insights about that. It doesn't mean I'm prescribing veganism to anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm also not prescribing the animal-based or whatever Paul, Paul Saladino is doing as well. But what I love about this, by bringing on different people like that, or people like Joanne Cacciatore or Dr. Nicole LaPera, these people who are often perceived to be controversial after the fact, what it does is it creates a spotlight for people to start looking intrinsically. They look at their own life and say, huh, that recipe they're sharing, might I benefit from that? And if the answer is no, that's okay. Mm. I don't need to be dogmatic and, and renounce it. I simply don't have to take it on if I don't get any value from it. Yeah. That's right. One of the hardest things to do in life is to give yourself permission to say something in a world where you and everyone else knows that what you say isn't going to apply to everyone and it isn't going to work for everyone. And so we we try to clean it up with preferences, like with prefaces, like, hey, this isn't for everyone or, hey, this is one way of looking at it. But then you can only spend so much time saying that before you just become a person who is constantly hemming and hawing and, you know, hedging 
and you never actually say anything. There's nothing more boring to listen to than just an hour of, now, this is just one of many possible ways to look at it. And, you know, this could be offensive if you see it a certain way, but if we carefully define the terms here and that, it's like, hey man, can you just say something? Yes. Can you take the risk of saying something? And sometimes we have people on, it's not so much promoting their ideas because like you said, Rich Roll and Paul Saladino, opposite viewpoints, and you even had a show where they're debating. It's about putting the ideas out there, having conversations, and knowing that it's going to help some people, and other people are going to say, it's not for me, and it's all good. But thank you for sharing your story, because uh, I think it's good for people to hear that, Mm -hmm. that everything that might strike you as a total waste of time could be the very thing that's setting someone else free. Mm. And as she said, it might have saved her life. Man, that's not why we did the episode, but what a beautiful byproduct yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I like having people on the show that I don't necessarily agree with because mm-hmm. it helps me do one or two things. Either one, it helps me change my perspective and understand people a little bit more, or it uh, helps me be seated even further into whatever value belief that is being tested. And either way, like uh, that is a benefit for me. Um, yeah. I, I, could you imagine if we had all the right answers? What a responsibility that would be, man, to, o- to have only the right answers. And that's the only thing that we could talk about on this show were right answers only. I used to, but they were all wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll check back in. we got a bunch more questions from the Patreon live stream. We'll check back in in a minute. But first, Malabama, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, my name is Stefania. I'm calling from St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm calling with a suggestion for your clothing episode. I've been using these socks called Darn Tough. It's a company from Vermont. Um, They guarantee their socks for life. I think all they sell is socks, actually. And while they are a little bit pricey, they do go on sale. Um, And the thought of having socks that will last Either my entire life or that will be replaced by the company feels really right, like it's right up my alley. Um, I've had these socks for over a year now, and they look as good as new. Um, I have had to return one pair, and the company had excellent customer service, so I highly recommend them. Hey, Josh. Hey, Ryan. Uh, there's a quote that I found recently that I've been implementing into my life to really help me. It goes as follows. Treat everyone with politeness, even those who are rude to you, not because they are nice, but because you are. Welcome back to The Minimalist. We're going to check back in with our Patreon live stream. Alabama, what question you got for us? We have a question here from TJ. When would be the best time to let go of sentimental items from a failed relationship, which meant and maybe still does mean a lot to me emotionally? Mm. The best time to let go was a decade ago. The second yeah. best time is right, right now. now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. The best time to let go was when holding on feels less joyful than mm. saying goodbye. Mm. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, it's interesting how we hold on to things that make us, I don't know, think of bad memories. Like, if I if I held on to things from past toxic relationships, I don't see how that would help me out whatsoever. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I guess, TJ, if you're still watching, like, what what are you holding on to that that's so hard to let go of? Let, let us know in the comments. I would be curious to know. I'm going to talk a bit on the More About Less segment about memories, and I think this will really resonate. Mm. It gave me a totally different perspective. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream in a bit, so drop your questions and comments there. But right now, we've got our Talk Aboutables segment. 
How long should I hold on to holiday cards? Mm. Check out this TikTok video from Devin Palmer. Here's to many more wonderful years ahead. Your friend, Keith. Thanks, oh, that was Keith. sweet. That's nice. Of course, man. How long am I supposed to keep this? What? Do you, what? How long <laughs> do you want me to keep this card in my house before I throw it out? Why are you asking because me? Because I don't know if I'm supposed to keep this for the rest of my life or not. You don't need to keep it for the rest of your life. Yeah, you could do whatever you want, man. It's fine. I need you to tell me exactly how long <laughs> you want me to pretend I want this in my possession. Just put <laughs> the card in a random pile and forget about it until you're sorting through stuff one day and then throw it away like everyone else I does. have too many random piles all over the place I have to sort through. I don't want to live life like We this. all have random piles we need to sort through all over the place. That's life. <laughs> Can I just throw this out right now in front of your face? No, you can't no, do that. That is extremely <laughs> rude. I read the card. I got it. The words aren't going to change. You can throw it away now. It's cool. Seriously. Thank you. It was a great card. <laughs> I love the words. You're coming with me. I really don't care either way. Okay. See, I feel like the energy just shifted in the room when I did that. Well, yeah, man, that was kind of an insane thing to do. It just got cold in here. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take it out. Take it out. You take have it to. out. You have to. I'm keeping the card for an indefinite amount of time. Thank you. As you should. <laughs> so good. How long do you want me to pretend that I want this card in my house? Yes. <laughs> I feel that way about anything that someone else wants me to hold on to. Mm that I don't want to hold on to because it, I've ceased to get the value from it, right? Yeah. And so what, of, what often happens is we continue to hold on to the thing. We're clinging because we're afraid of what someone else might think if we let go of it. Mm. <laughs> it also captures just the importance of optics as well, right? We all know deep down inside that you can't hold on to those cards forever. And when you get somebody a card, they're going to throw it out. But what makes this funny is like, hey, like, can we just keep it real and let me throw it out in front of your face? Right. But it's part of the game, man. It's funny, though. There's, oh my a, there's God. a way to be disrespectful and a way to be respectful. And you right. don't realize quite often, like, if you rip the card up in front of them as soon as you've read hurt. it. Right. Oh, this is a great card. <laughs> <laughs> but if you went back to that same friend like two weeks later and was like, hey, man, I'm sorry, but that card you got me, I threw it out. They're going to be like, dude, I don't care. That was two weeks ago. Right? Yeah. Mm. Oh, man. I can't wait till Mariah and I have kids just so I could send out <laughs> Christmas cards of our pictures of our family. And then in the, you know, in the bottom like corner, it'll be like, feel free to throw out immediately. <laughs> <laughs> just not in front of my face. That's right. Well, it's funny because like, I know Mariah and I do like we have friends who send us different cards and I want to get rid of them like, you know, the day after Christmas. And uh, Mariah does not want to, which is fine. She can hold on to those cards as long as she wants. But an I, indefinite period of an time. An indefinite period of time. But it is funny because it is totally like, oh, um, yeah, let's set that in a random pile. Speaking of uh, uh, the, the no piles rule um, quickly disseminates when you keep piles of cards. That's right. Uh, yes. And it's like, oh, I'm going to go through this one day and yeah. Oh, yeah, this is from last Christmas. And now all of a sudden it's OK for me to get rid of it, even though it's just been sitting in a pile anyway. I, yeah, it is. A, that was a great TikTok. <laughs> Throwing away my cards is like taking a crap. I know that you're going to do it. I just don't want to see you do it. Ah. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Let's move on to our sucky ad segment. <laughs> 
little segment we do where we talk about an advertisement that sucks because on this podcast, you know that, you know how we feel about advertisements, y'all. One of our patrons, Star, sent this in. By the way, you can send in your sucky ads, your impulse purchases, your amass it or trash it, your obsolete objects to podcast at theminimalists.com. We're going to be moving more toward the voice recording. So go ahead and send a voice recording talking about it. This one, though, requires a photograph. Mm. Danny, bring that iPad over here. I want to. I want them to take a look at this <clears throat> photograph. So this is, well, you'll see here, it's a fortune cookie. If you're just listening to the audio version of the private podcast, TK, I'm going to have you describe this fortune cookie. Someone has opened it. And there's a message. We get these really, you know, these aphorisms, these Zen Cohen's, these parables. Yes. The original minimal maxim was the fortune cookie. Yes. <laughs> and what do we have here? All right. So the piece of paper that the fortune is usually written on says, you deserve some credit. Wait. Okay. Okay. I get that. Yeah. You deserve some credit, <laughs> Ryan. You deserve some credit, man. Aren't you supposed to put like in bed after a fortune? <laughs> I do deserve some credit in bed. <laughs> and that would be a great fortune, right? It does all the things that the fortunes are designed to do. Get you thinking, you know, leave room for you to interpret it in whatever way you want so you could make it right. Mm-hmm. I do deserve, deserve some credit. I was just thinking about that thing that I did seven years ago mm-hmm. that nobody thanked me for. Mm-hmm. Whatever. <laughs> but there's more to the message. Mm-hmm. Underneath, you deserve some credit. In smaller words, it says, start building credit for a better future. And then Visa. <laughs> And there's a QR code next to it as well. If you want to go, maybe I, I suppose sign up for some Visa uh, products. So you just, it's, it's essentially wow. an advertisement, a Visa advertisement. And um, the meme uh, says, well, these sure have changed. Oh, this is why I hate advertisements, because it takes something <laughs> that is beautiful. You deserve some credit, right? Mm. It takes some sort of inspiring message and totally ruins it because of what you just said, TK. There's more to the message. And here, the more to the message is buy something. You yeah. are incomplete. And by the way, you don't deserve some credit unless you have a Visa card. Mm. Dude. Ruins the way sentiment. To, way to ruin fortune cookies, Visa. Good grief. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> Let's do a minimalist home tour really quick. Last week, we had Kristen Ziegler from Minima on the podcast. She's a professional organizer. I aspire to be her someday. In (laughs) fact, um, her and I are, Bex, her and I are meeting next week virtually to, uh, she's going to help me tidy up the last 2% of my house. And so as Ryan always said, I would love for my aesthetic to be like Josh's. And I'm like, I would love for mine to be like Kristen's. I would love to have the desire to put the work in to make my aesthetic like yours or uh, the, over there minima. Well, I wish she had the talent or I wish I had the talent that she had rather mm. because this talent that she has is it's so calming to me. It feels perfect Mm. in the truest sense of the word. It feels completely done. When I Mm -hmm. see pictures of her home, which we're going to look at now, I think we have six photos. Jordan, let's pull up the first one here. If you're watching the video version, if not, we'll do our best to describe these. Gorgeous. already showed up in your inbox last Friday if you're a video uh, private podcast subscriber. What are we seeing here, ladies and gentlemen? That couch is awesome. It's just her living room, and it's super simple. It actually has all of the components that you would see 
in your average living room. What is the difference here? It's intentional and there is no excess. I like the eight foot couch. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, that's what Mariah and I have. And I could like literally lay down on that thing and there's still room for two people to sit. It's freaking, I love big couches like that. Many of you don't know, Ryan is actually eight feet tall. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's perfect. <laughs> well, it's seven, 11 and three quarters. <laughs> so right, what else we got, Danny? Next uh, photo here. This is the yeah. second one. This is another angle of her living room. And nice. she has something. You're like, oh, wait, you own a TV? How could you be a extreme minimalist like this and own a TV? Well, because she gets value from it. Don't take her TV away. Don't tell her she shouldn't have a TV just because you think it's not minimalist. Right. We're not the host of that TV show that I'm pitching, Minimize Your House, where we just <laughs> go in and we make people throw out stuff that they really love. <laughs> Joy, you need to minimize yeah. that. It's <laughs> a great idea. Like We do a bank robber film, but it's just the three of us breaking people's houses and decluttering. Right. <laughs> Let's do photo number three here. The next photo is of her uh, her dining area. Wow. And what I really enjoy about this, she has that Siren uh, table but it's from one from Ikea. I can just tell this one happens to be from Ikea. And she has the really nice wishbone chairs. I think that's from Design Within Reach. And the walls are white. It's not required to have a whole bunch of stuff on the wall. She has one piece of art. I think that's eggshell, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan Bateman over here. How dare you? (laughs) And then there's a plant which brings some color into the space. There's a beautiful light. I just replaced two of the lights in our home. You saw it on our last uh, tour last week, and it makes a total difference. Even though the lights, the light fixtures look fine, as soon as I replaced it with a beautiful, this is from uh, the Nelson light, is from Design Within Reach, it changes not just the look of the space, but the way the space is mm. lit. And man, it makes a huge difference. We've got a few more here. The next photo is of her kitchen, and it is aggressively simple. Yeah. It's all white cabinets, a white fridge, white subway tile on, on the backsplash and the back, the back wall there. Again, no excess, but it's also not sterile. It's close, but there's a plant there. There's There are a few rags. You know, there, there are a few things on the countertop as well, things that she uses regularly, and everything else is hidden away. Mm-hmm. Next photo. This is her bedroom. This looks a lot like my bedroom. There's no excess here. It's aggressively simple, but it's the space we use to sleep. I also use that space for uh, workouts and yoga, and I don't require all the accoutrements. They're going to clutter not just the space, but they clutter my mind when I'm I'm in there because now I have to clean them, take care of them, worry Mm. about them. Mm. One more here. And this is her closet slash a hallway. And you can just see the closet here. It's not devoid of clothes. It's not devoid of colors. It's not devoid of variety, but it is devoid of unnecessary or superfluous things. These are things that she uses and they're within the boundary. They're not crammed in there, but they're also, there's more than one thing. She doesn't own one outfit. She owns what is enough for her. Looks like she might adhere to Project 333 or something close to that. Our friend Courtney Carver's wardrobe project, but it keeps the home simple when you've set up these boundaries instead of trying to cram more in there. We were just at this event with uh, Dave Ramsey and Dave Ramsey's wife walks up to me and she goes, you know, we moved to a new house, right? I said, awesome. Congratulations. He goes, 
I really need you to come over and take a look at my closet. <laughs> she said, I don't wear 99% of the things. And that's still after getting rid of half of them mm. during the move. Wow. And that's what happens. We hold on to things because, well, we aspire to wear them or we might wear them or there's some possibility that we will wear them. But just like holding on to that old blue pin that we don't use, we hold on to all these things that take up the space and actually get in the way of the things that we could benefit from wearing. Yeah. That's the 35th in the Minimalist Home Tour installment. Let's check back in with the Patreon live stream for another question from one of our lovely Patreon subscribers. Here's a question from Susan. My husband and I are planning a future move from the house that we've lived in for 35 years. I'm having a hard time getting rid of things because they have a high monetary value. When there's so much stuff, how do you know whether to hold a garage sale or hire an estate sale company? Hmm. Well, it, it wouldn't hurt to talk to someone from an estate sale company and just tell them what your dilemma is, see what they have to say and how strongly that resonates with you, right? Um, I wouldn't put the pressure on myself to make decisions from my state of non-expertise all by myself. I would get a consultant, uh, consulting conversation going and see how that works. Uh, additionally, I would also take a look at how much work I want to do. You're already dealing with a move, letting go of a place you've lived for a very long time. Do you actually feel like doing all the work that would go into a garage sale? If that's a hell no, then you already know what you need to do. If that's something that sounds fun and feasible, then that's information that can be valuable to you as well. Just some perspective. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I feel like we hold on to things because of this perceived value. And it's like we torture ourselves hanging on to whatever we think the monetary value is of something. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's like estate sale, garage sale, I don't care how you get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Like if getting rid of it's going to uh, help you enjoy your space more, then um, I, don't, I don't think you need to nickel and dime yourself uh, to death. Here's how you let go of possessions. I call it the selling deadline rule. What I've done is I've determined that if I can sell something, I will try to sell it. If it doesn't sell in the first week, I'll lower the price. If it doesn't sell in 30 days, then what happens? Well, I'm going to donate it. Mm -hmm. If I can't donate it, I will try to recycle it. If it's not recyclable, then eventually it ends up in the trash. The problem with perceived value, you may be holding on to something because you think it's worth $1,000, even though you're not getting value from it. So you're not getting $1,000 worth of value from it. Will someone else get $1,000 worth of value from it? If so, someone will buy it from Mm -hmm. you. They will exchange their $1,000. If not, they might give you 500 bucks for it. And that means it's not worth $1,000 anymore. And that's okay. It may be worth $20. And that's okay as well. Mm. Letting go of it not only gets you the $20, but it frees up the space you otherwise wouldn't have. The worst thing we can do is hold on to something because we're like, oh, that thing's worth $500, but no one is willing to give you anything for it. It's worth zero dollars. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's and worth less than zero. Yes. Yeah. To quote Brett Easton Ellis. Mm. Congratulations on the move. Good Heck luck yeah. with the transition. Yeah. Hope you sell all that stuff. Amen. Mm-hmm. Let's read some more about less, gentlemen. We've got this private essay from Kapil Gupta. It's called On Memories. I was talking about this earlier. We often think that our memories are in our things. As minimalists, we've realized that our memories are inside us. But here's an additional take on memories. Malabama, you want to read this for us? People attempt to make memories. In fact, they often say, let's make new memories. Yet the very things they attempt to create bring them mostly pain. 
painful memories bring pain. As for happy memories, the reason that a person revisits them is because he is lacking that happiness now. If he was not lacking that happiness now, he would have no need to look for it in memories because he would be experiencing it right where he stands. When he revisits these happy memories, this also brings him pain. For it is a reminder that this is not the way things are now. Who would be happier? A man who has a plethora of memories? Or one whose brain has been completely wiped free of them? Mm. Namaste. This this reminds me of Rob Bell when he, he wrote about this in his book, How to Be Here, which I buy by the case and hand out. It's the reason uh, my wife left her job at the university after over a decade, because she realized that she was holding on to something that was not just not serving her anymore, but it was making her miserable because it should be this way, but it is this way, right? And it's easy to hear this essay from Kapil and think, oh, I guess I should get rid of my memories now. Well, if you know Kapil Gupta, you know he's definitely not prescribing that. He's making an observation that was so interesting to me because it illustrated something that was true for me. And that truth is when I'm truly immersed in the moment, and that happens, it could be when I'm in the ocean and jumping into the waves, or Ryan, if you're surfing or snowboarding, Or if I'm writing in the mornings, if I'm having sex with my wife, like there are times where I'm truly in the moment and I don't need the memories of the past. In fact, in that moment, those memories might get in the way of enjoying this experience. It doesn't mean memories are bad or evil or immoral or unethical. It means that quite often we cling to memories when they're not doing anything else for us. You know, I I see a a memory as just a a mental experience that's happening right now in the present moment, coupled together with a story about the past. And so it's not all that different from something I might fantasize about or something that I might imagine, except the memory has a story that this really happened. So I could be imagining myself walking through the mall And what makes that a memory versus a fantasy? The memory is, yeah, I remember when I did that yesterday. The fantasy is, oh, that would be cool to be doing that right now. And what causes it to bring pleasure or pain is the way you relate to it. If you're indulging in a memory and saying, oh, that was such a good moment. Too bad my life isn't living up to that today. Then your memories are self-defeating. But if you can say, oh, that was such a good moment. I feel so good right now knowing that I am living in a manner that's consistent with my values, then your memories can be reinforcing of the life that you want to live. So just like with our things, so it is with our memories. It's all about how you relate to it. It's all about the story you're telling yourself now. Hmm. Ryan, any additional insights here? Um, no, nah, man. I mean, I don't know. I, I, uh, Get him another cup of coffee. No. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to this memories thing, it's just like there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, I was going to say something, but I don't remember. <clears throat> I'm just yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I see what Kapil's saying. And um, yes, if we're trying to constantly live in our memories, then th- that's probably a symptom of something else that is uh, that needs to be addressed in, in, in our lives in the present moment. Mm. Um, 
But yeah, it's almost like, I don't know, man. Like I think about snowboarding all the time because I really enjoy it. And it's like, oh, what am I going to do next? And like kind of inspires me to to do other things. Um, but I don't certainly get lost in my memories and like tune everybody out around me because life is so horrible that I just need to get lost in those memories from the past that make me feel good. Yeah, I, uh, yes, I, I, I have nothing else to say besides that. <laughs> Well, you know, you make me think when you talk about snowboarding that a memory is really kind of like a the conceptual version of a sentimental item. Mm-hmm. And it's the same logic behind it, right? Some sentimental items, hell yeah, you keep them because they bring you a hell of a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. Some sentimental items where it's like, man, get rid of that thing. Stop l- allowing your, your yeah. life to be led by guilt. I mean, it's just whether it's in your imagination or in your home, it can still be clutter. It can still be a source of joy. Doesn't matter what substance it's made out of. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the essence of this essay? Like if you had to sum it up, like what is the essence of the essay? Memories are clutter when they get in the way of the present moment. Mm, Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you hang on to the actual clutter, it's it's just double the clutter. (laughs) Yes. Well, I love what TK was saying earlier about the, the, the distinction between a memory and a fantasy. Yeah. Essentially what you're saying is memories are fantasies from the past. Mm. Yeah, You could tweet that podcast, That's John. Good. Harry Potter yeah. quote. There's a moment where Harry Potter says to Dumbledore, he goes, is this real or is it just happening in my mind? And Dumbledore says, it's happening in your mind, but why should you think that makes it any less real? Yes. <laughs> Doesn't matter where the clutter is located. I got a, a um, exciting programming announcement really quick. So we've been talking about this for a while, you know, uh, for our private podcast, we do a video version of the private podcast. We switched from YouTube about a year or so ago because of the higher video quality and enables us to play music and other things that we couldn't do with YouTube without getting copyright stricken. (laughs) And then they would throw ads on our private podcast video, which we couldn't tolerate at all, right? Even yeah. though they were private videos. And so we moved over to the Patreon player and it has been outstanding except for one thing. We haven't had closed captioning built into the player. Well, that is changing. You're not only getting closed captioning, but also adjustable playback speeds will be available on Patreon video on the web and mobile versions within the next few weeks. By the time this episode comes out, you may already be able to change the playback speed. So if you're psychotic like I am, you could do the 2x speed or... (laughs) The 1.25, whatever you want to do, right? Uh, Anytime that uh, my daughter gets in the car and a podcast starts playing automatically, she's like, how do you listen to this? (laughs) And to me, it's just like uploading more information. I've trained my brain to listen more quickly. You can do that as well, but also closed captioning for folks who want to take advantage of that when they're watching the video version of the podcast. Before you could use an outside plugin to get the closed captioning, but now it's going to be built in to the Patreon video player. For added value this week, Ryan, what you're hearing in the background right now, I am loving this new album from The National. What a great album title, by the way. The first two pages of Frankenstein is... And I had trouble picking a song. And so the song that I picked here, because we're talking about memories today, is a song about clinging to memories. Mm. The song you hear in the background right now. It's called New Order T-Shirt. And I love this line. I keep what I can of you. Split second glimpses and snapshots and sounds. 
clinging to memories of a past relationship or maybe the same relationship that you're in now, but back when it was good. Mm. That disease of nostalgia that tells us it was better back then, even if it's not good now, because we filter out all of the things that annoyed us in the past. We filter out all the things that are like, oh, I didn't like that. We just remember the 2D version of the relationship, those memories that make Mm -hmm. it better than what it actually was. The new album from The National is called First Two Pages of Frankenstein. This song is New Order T-Shirt. I was going to recommend this week the movie Air, but I talked about it on Bex's podcast, How to Love, so I'm not going to do that here. I'll just say I walked out of it, and it was just one of those feel-good... I haven't seen a real, truly feel-good movie in a long time. And so I really enjoyed it. And Ben Affleck directed it. I think he may have written it. He certainly stars in it as well. That's why I get so mad when we when we do the uh, advertisements suck and he's doing a Dunkin' Donuts commercial. Don't go there. Don't go there. Because here's what happens. <laughs> he is a, a master of directing and acting and writing. And then he's doing a freaking commercial. So right? air, air. Air, beautiful movie. That's all I have to say. I heard it was about goats or something like that. (laughs) I haven't seen it. Goat's milk, and one might say. (laughs) Uh, And one thing, Mallory is super excited about this. Post-production Peter sent this over to me. JustTheRecipe.com. This is great, guys. (laughs) Yeah? What's this? You can clear the clutter on any recipe site. No more pop-up ads. No more pop-ups on the website. And no No. more preamble to the recipe. It is just the recipe. But I love reading the 5,000 words words of that person's experience in Tuscany and how they came across this delightful cheese. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. But sometimes I'm in the kitchen and I have like 20 minutes to prepare something and I just need the recipe. I know. No, it is crazy. This is great. I love this. Before we get to the recipe, let me (laughs) me tell you my life story. (laughs) Cool breeze in 1983. Right, exactly. Oh, man. So if you want to get to just the recipe, it's justtherecipe.com. Big thanks to post-production Peter for that. Enjoy this song. It is called New Order T-Shirt from The National's new album. I gotta say one more thing about them. I don't know any band that has had a run this long. Their first album came out in 2001 mm-hmm. and I get that there are still pe- there are people who put out albums for 20, 30, 40 years. But to me, this could be my favorite album from The National. Mm. 22, 23 years into their career, they're creating something that I still enjoy just as much, if not more, as the things that I look back and have these fond memories of. That is our Maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama Podcast, Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just One message. Let it be this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. See you next time. How you tapped on a box of blue American spears At Anyway Cafe A little under a month Before the ashes and management capital files filled the streets How we wove through the combs, walking home to the place on Atlantic You shared with your hilarious sister Kicking off your black flags, demolished and laughing 